to read some scripture for us uh, tonight, and uh, we like to stand while we do that, so I appreciate you doing it for me. This is the very beginning of the New Testament. This is Matthew chapter 1, and there's actually 17 verses that start this genealogy of Jesus, and we're not going to read all 17 verses because it's long, but mainly because I can't pronounce all the names. And so I'm just going to pick a couple of verses to read to you that are important for us, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 5, 6, 16, and 17. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above, what we read and what we didn't read, include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. You can be seated. That may seem like a strange verse to read, verses to read, passage to read um, for Christmas Eve service, but it shouldn't be. Uh, traditionally, uh, the Christmas story is read from Luke chapter 2. We're going to do that a little bit later. Um, the famous Christmas story as we typically read it, the Charlie Brown version of the Christmas story uh, is Luke 2. But Matthew chapter 1 is every much as part of the Christmas story as Luke 2 is because it gives us the, the genealogy of Jesus. If you have a, a, a paper Bible um, it may say the ancestors of Jesus, NIV probably says the genealogy of Jesus, but this is the family tree of, of Jesus. And if you've ever tried to, uh, you've been motivated to read the Bible, maybe, maybe this is happening for you right now, like the new year's coming and you're like, hey, I want to read the Bible more. And so maybe, you know, a lot of times they'll ask, people will ask us, you know, hey, I want to start reading the Bible. Where should I start? And we always say, start in the New Testament, you know, start with John or start with Matthew. And a lot of people start at the beginning of the New Testament and there's this enthusiasm for reading the Bible. And they say, yes, I can't wait. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to get my coffee. It's going to be morning time. God's going to speak to me. This is going to be amazing. And then they open Matthew chapter one and it says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. And it's just a bunch of names. And it's like, not what I was expecting, wanting to read the Bible and have God speak to me. So the question is, why on Christmas Eve would 42 generations of names be important to you and me? And the answer is because it tells us the family of Jesus, the genealogy, the history of Jesus. And this is important to those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are believers, whose faith is in Jesus Christ. These lists of names are incredibly important. And while there are a lot of things that we could learn and I could teach on uh, tonight, I just want to give you two things that this list uh, teaches us. Two things that we can learn from these lists of names as we uh, are celebrating Christmas on this Christmas Eve. And I'm going to try to keep this short and sweet because I have one of my kids in the room. And you have some kids in the room. And, uh, and so I've already threatened mine to near death. And um, Annie's on the front row. So this is dangerous. Eyes up here, everybody. Eyes up here. So let me give you two things we can learn from the genealogy of Jesus. First thing we can learn is this, is that Jesus 
was a real person. Jesus was a real person. You're like, well, why does that matter that Jesus was a real person? Well, it matters a great deal. Because the story of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something that's made up. It's not based on a true story. It is a true story. Uh, recently, Andrea and I watched this, the movie King Richard with Will Smith. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but um, it was awesome. We loved it. And as we were watching, if you're not familiar with it, it's the, it's the story of Venus and Serena Williams' father, who was kind of grooming them to be tennis superstars. And um, I don't know how much he had to do with the telling of the story, but probably a good deal because it presents him in the greatest light ever. And as a dad, I know that like that, it didn't all, it didn't go that good all the time, right? Um, and so I'm sitting there watching the movie and I'm thinking like, how much, I wonder how much of this is true. And actually a lot of it is true that they, uh, the, one of the sisters, not Venus and Serena, one of the other sisters, there was five of them, but one of the other sisters was actually on set every day to verify that, that what was, you know, being told in the story was true. But, but what it tells you about King Richard and what it tells you about all kinds of movies that we watch, is that they are based on a true story. And what based on a true story means is that they take the story and they take the parts of the story that help them tell a better story. And they exaggerate and highlight the dramatic parts and they leave out the boring parts or maybe the overly negative parts. And so the crux of what you're watching, the gist of what you're watching is true. But sometimes it's loosely true. Like it's based on the fact that there was a dad who had a daughter who played tennis. Or there was a guy on a boat who went out in the ocean somewhere. And some movies are really accurate and some are not. But in, in the fine print, you always find that it is based on a true story. So you can't totally trust all of it, but you get the gist of it. But Jesus, the story of Jesus is not based on a true story. It is a true story. He's a real person, Jesus was. And This is significant for anybody who calls themselves a Christian because if Jesus is a real person, then that means we have to take him seriously. We have to take him seriously. And and if Jesus really was God as a human being, then every person in the room tonight and every person who's watching online has a choice that you have to make. You have to make it. I talk to people all the time and they find out that I'm a pastor. The, the conversation gets very spiritual very fast. And, uh, and that's okay. It just is what it is. And, um, and I do that to people. If they say they're an electrician, I like, you know, try to talk about some recent light switch that I fixed or something. I don't know. So if I say I'm a pastor, people are like, oh, yeah, I went to church as a kid. I'm like, okay. Um, and so we get into these spiritual conversations. And here's what I've noticed is that um, almost no one has a problem with God. They're not offended by the idea of God. They're not bothered by the idea of a higher power or someone sending out thoughts and prayers. I've found that even non-religious people are very superstitious. They believe that God plays a part in life somehow. I talked to a guy one time who said, I smoke, but not on Sundays. <laughs> and I was like, why? And he's like, I just feel like God would be upset if I smoked on Sundays. And I was like, Okay, all right, you know, okay. But like, that's just what this guy believed, you know? It's like, it made sense in his head, you know? And, and just incredibly superstitious, you know, God plays a part somehow. 
And what I find with most people is that, is that they, they don't necessarily want a father in heaven as much as they want a grandfather in heaven. And I borrow that kind of idea from C.S. Lewis where he talks about that this is really, most people kind of want a grandfather in heaven. They want someone who, it's their, the, his job is just to spoil and to see people enjoying themselves. And he, he says that, uh, that we want a grandfather who wants a good time to be had by all. But, and we want a personal God, but we don't want a God that necessarily interferes with our life. But when God sent Jesus, he dramatically interfered with our life in the best possible way. And so this idea of being incredibly spiritual and um, believing in God, it's, it's fine, but that's not Christianity. And, and, and so maybe you, you would consider yourself very spiritual, but, but, but just believing in God, that's not what Christianity is because Christianity is based on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Christmas is a Christian holiday. And I'm not saying that as like a, like a you know, grouchy guy. Like, I don't care what you call it, but, we, but we, we're celebrating something incredibly Christian. That God came as a real person and divided history and interrupted this, this world. Christianity is based on the person of Jesus Christ, God as a human being. And Jesus had parents, and he had grandparents, and he had great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents, and so on, and so on, and so on. He was a real person. And so the Christmas story forces us to, to, to make a choice. We can't do nothing. We, we can't do nothing. Either Jesus was a real person and he has to be taken seriously or he's a made-up religious figure or he's a moral teacher in some figurative way, metaphorical way, but he, he's not real. you got to make a choice. Either Jesus was a real person, so real that you could track down his relatives or he was just a, a fairy tale. And that requires a response. And I guess you could respond a lot of different ways, but, but I, I jotted down four ways maybe you could respond tonight. One way you could respond is you could ignore Jesus, the real person. You could be like, whatever, fine. Hurry up. This is my gift to my girlfriend. Let's go, you know? Or, or maybe, maybe a, a second response would be like, that's interesting, and you would want to investigate that. You're not ready to believe yet, but you would say, you know what, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to find out more about that. I'm going to kind of research that on my own terms. I've got questions. And here's what's interesting is that uh, overwhelmingly you hear stories of people that decide that they're going to deep dive into studying the legitimacy of the Bible or Jesus to disprove it in some way. And that when they get to the end of their journey, they are believers, devout believers, incredibly faith-filled because the more you try to disprove it, the more you realize you can't disprove it. That yes, faith is required in order to be a Christian, but it's not all about faith, that there are real tangible, credible facts about this faith that we believe in. And the most tangible one is that Jesus Christ was a real person. 
He's really a person. Even, even historians who are not Christians documented this man named Jesus. And so maybe that's your response. You say, I like you, but I don't trust you. I'm going to figure it out for myself. And I appreciate that, by the way. Maybe another response would be you would say, you know what, I've been, I've been, um, I've been thinking about this a while. And I do believe. And so your response would say, you know, I don't want to believe in Jesus. I want to put my faith in Jesus. And maybe you would take some kind of visible, uh, you, you would have a visible way of doing that. But really in your heart, you've already started believing that, that this real person, Jesus, is someone you can follow. And that's the fourth response. As you say, I don't just believe in Jesus, but I want to follow Jesus. The same way that the disciples 12 disciples followed Jesus around. We can't literally follow Jesus around in the, in the tangible way, but, but we have the Holy Spirit, and, and, and this is God in spirit form. And so we can be with Jesus and follow Jesus and be like Jesus. And so maybe that's your response. But you can't do nothing. To be a Christian means to believe in Jesus and be like Jesus. And, and when you make that choice to do that, you, bec- you add your name to this list. Now, the list stops at Mary and Joseph and Jesus because that was the end of the list when it was written. But the Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we become part of the family of God. We become part of God's family. And that's a beautiful thing. We're going to be talking about this in January, but that also means that no matter how screwed up your family is and how much it messed you up, The beautiful thing is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you get adopted into a brand new family, the family of God. And we've got, we got weird relatives too, but, but you're part of the family of God. Your name gets added to the list of the genealogy of the, of the relatives of the family of Jesus. And so I know that Christmas can become uh, sentimental, overly sentimental sometimes. And that's okay. We'll have fun with that. But for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are people of faith, this is not just a sentimental holiday. This is the celebration of a real person, a real person, Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish man who showed up in Palestine 2,000 years ago and, and our faith is in the work of that person, the life of that person. And he had parents and grandparents too. So that's the first thing that we can learn from the genealogy of Jesus. But the second thing that we can learn from the genealogy of Jesus is that, is that God knows what he's doing. That God knows what he's doing. God's plans take time. And it's so frustrating that they do. They take so much time, but they don't have to. That's what's frustrating, is that God could do anything he wanted to do, however he wanted to do it, any time he wanted to do it. But for some reason, beyond our understanding, God chooses to use people and a calendar to bring about his plans. And I want you for a moment to just think about the patience of God to bring Jesus in the world through 42 generations of families. 42 generations of families. This whole time, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. But not until 42 generations of families 
have come and gone. And by the way, these are not 42 generations of privileged white-collar families. If you really take a little bit of time to go through these lists of people, you're going to find that there's some real uh, questionable characters in the genealogy of Jesus. Murderers and prostitutes, non-Jewish people, which doesn't sound that big of a deal for us, but that would have been a huge deal uh, for the people reading this list for verification purposes. There's also women, by the way, in this list, which is, again, not a big deal to us, but for this period, time period, no one would have ever included women in the, in, the, in the genealogy of something because it lacked the credibility. But this is just another example, by the way, total rabbit trail here. This is just another way that Christianity has always come along and, and been a different countercultural voice when it comes to genders and sexuality and ethnicities. And, and, and this Christianity was this all-inclusive way. And so this is just one example where Matthew is like giving us this, 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 this genealogy of Jesus and saying, man, it includes everybody. It includes, includes you if you want to be a part of that. And so we read 42 generations of families and names, and, and we are reminded that God is always working. God is always working. And nobody really knew what was happening, and nobody really could put it all together. And then right about the time Jesus came, people thought they knew that what was going to happen, and they didn't know what was going to, you know, they, they guessed wrong which is why you shouldn't put too much stock into the people who say they know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and so he's working, he's working, he's working, he's working. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. But he knows what he's doing. Uh, I know there's some guests here with us tonight, but for those of you who have been coming for a little while, uh, you know that I told you recently we've been, we, we took a time to, to teach through this series called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which is all about lament and grief. And I told you during that time that this has been the hardest year of my life um, by far. Not even, there's not even a close second. Like it's just been the hardest. And I know some of you have experienced that this year too, but personally as a dad and a husband and a human being and as a pastor, uh, a leader, um, a relative, like it's just been hard. And There have been so many times during this year when I have wondered and written in a journal or in prayer where some form of the question, God, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. I'm always kind of wrestling with confusion. That's one of my dominant themes. It's like, what's going on? I can't figure it out. I'm incredibly discouraged. And um, it's just been tough. And I told somebody actually tonight, uh, you know, I was, I've been counting down the days to the end of the year. You ever have years like that where you're like, how many more days we got, you know? And I know that there's nothing that like at the beginning of the, it doesn't, just because the calendar changes doesn't mean that life changes, but I kind of feels like it does and I'll take it. You know what I mean? Like if that's what we got to work with, I'll go with that. Um, but I was like, man, it's like, I've been, my kids have been counting down the day to Christmas and I've been counting down the day to the end of the year. Like how many more days, right? And just wondering like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And this past uh, week, God gave me the most incredible reminder that he knows what he's doing. It was almost as if God was like, Jason, just hang tight, buddy. I know what I'm doing. Some of you know about this. Word was kind of spreading around town a little bit. But um, I want to show you a video. This past uh, weekend, Dave Stone 
uh, who's the former pastor of Southeast Christian, was speaking and um, shared a story about our church. And it was a surreal moment for me. To give you just a little bit of background, I, I was about six or eight weeks ago, I was flying back home. I think it was eight weeks ago. I can't remember. Time, the calendar's weird. But I was actually flying back in town late on a Saturday night. It was like 1130, the last flight in. And I look up about three rows and it's Dave Stone. And, you know, I don't know, like people get starstruck about celebrities. I'm a pastor, so I get starstruck about other pastors. I don't know how it works, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's Dave Stone. And uh, I'm texting Andrea like, hey, I'm sneaking a picture in. And so like, I feel guilty because it's like 1130 on a Saturday night and I'm working on my sermon on the plane, but I see he's working on a sermon. I'm like, okay, well, if Dave Stone's working on a sermon, I'm okay, you know. And, um, and, and so when the plane landed, I had a chance just to say, hey, and introduce myself. And I want you to just hear uh, from his perspective what happened, and then I'm going to come back and, and close this out. And every time an angel gave clear direction to Joseph, he did what God commanded him to do. And when you feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit or prompting from God, I hope you'll follow through like Joseph Back in the fall of 2014 here at Southeast, we were about a month out from opening our Southwest campus when a letter came to me from a pastor. His name was Jason Isaacs, the pastor of Hope City Church here in town. Said, dear Dave, we are located less than five minutes from the new Southwest campus that you are currently building. It's common for churches to feel a sense of competition with each other for natural reasons. We have even wrestled with some of these same emotions since we heard that you all were building a campus near us. But we want you to know that we believe in Southeast and what you are doing to reach this city for Jesus. We're praying for you as you launch your new Southwest campus. And we have included with this letter a financial gift for your building fund. This is a sacrificial gift from our church staff to let you know how much we believe in what you are doing and to remind us that we are a family serving this city together. If your treasure is where your heart is, then we want our heart to be for your success. We are praying and believing with you, Pastor Jason Isaacs, Hope City. And then it was personally signed by their five or six staff members. I read that and I, I called up our finance people and I said, tell, just tell me what, what they gave. And, and they wouldn't tell me. They, they don't tell, they keep all of those things private. And I, I tried everything I could and they wouldn't tell me. But it felt like a million bucks. That morning, Jason felt like the Lord had prompted him to do that. And, and so he shared it with their staff and they agreed and they participated and, and they gave. And that type of spirit is so refreshing. I think that God blesses that type of sacrifice when people choose to build his kingdom by emptying their jar. And they didn't have to do that. They, like Joseph, wanted to be obedient to God's promptings and, and their generosity in part helped the Southwest campus become a reality. Several months ago, I had a buddy of mine who doesn't go to church here but this Christian man, he texted me out of the blue and he said that he had some money that he would like for me to give away to a ministry. And it was a substantial amount. And he said, you can choose any ministry uh, that, that you want. And it was awesome. I mean, I felt like a kid in a candy store, right? And I had so much fun praying and just pondering who, who, who should get this money. 
And a few days later, I was on an airplane and I was praying on that airplane about this very thing. And I was actually jotting down the names of different ministries where I felt this gift could make a huge impact for God's kingdom. Put my stuff away. We landed in Louisville. I'm getting my stuff out of the overhead bin. And a guy three rows behind says, hey, hey, Dave. He said, I appreciate your ministry and all that Southeast does. And I said, well, thank you very much. And when I, I got off the plane, I waited for him to come off. And I met him and I, I walked with him. He said he was a pastor here in town. And through the course of the conversation, I discovered that this was Jason. This was the guy whose letter I read to you earlier. He was the pastor who, who gave along with his staff that sacrificial gift when our Southwest campus was about to open. And I told him just how much that meant to our church and what a display of obedience to what God put on his heart. And then I said, I don't recall how much you gave. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he didn't miss a beat. He said, it, it was $1,000 uh, from our staff. But there was a reason I asked seven years ago. And there was a reason I asked a couple months ago. Because in that instant, I knew where I was going to give my friend's financial gift. And a couple weeks later, I met Jason for lunch. And toward the end of the meal, I gave him a letter that I'd written. It said, uh, the gift you and your church staff gave us seven years ago was a huge encouragement. I've always wanted your act of generosity to be multiplied. And now because of someone else's obedience to God's prompting, and because of this gentleman's sacrifice and generosity, Hope City can be blessed. And then I wrote out this verse from Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And I handed him a check and we're sitting in McAllister's and he looks at it and he just starts weeping. I'm telling you, it was a moment. And when he was able to collect himself, he said, we've been looking for a bigger place for us to worship so we can reach more people, but it seems that every door has been shut. I've become quite discouraged in recent weeks and wondered if we should just stop our search. He said, and now this, this is God's way of saying, I'm here, I've got this. Our God is so creative with his unorthodox and unusual methods to get his money to different people and causes at just the right time. We just need to be obedient to his leading. And that day I found out that there's nothing more fun than to give away someone else's money. <laughs> well, there's one thing that's more fun and more fulfilling. Andrea, because I she was speaking Sunday. Dave texted me Thursday, said, hey, I'm going to share the story. And Andrea was already planning on speaking last Sunday. And so when I, we opened up the service at 11 o'clock, and then I slid out and drove to the Blankenbaker campus. And I just sat in the back row of the balcony, which you've ever been in that building. It's just this enormous building. And I just wanted to be in the room. It was kind of a full circle moment. And I, I was driving home, and I texted Andrea and a few of the elders, and I said, 
the money was amazing. Even the, even the, the recognition was rewarding in some way. But honest to goodness, you know what it was that made the past five days so unbelievable was just this, that, just this reminder from God. I know where you're at. I know what you're doing. And I know what I'm doing. And seven years later, totally out of sight, out of mind, moving on. Because honestly, like, I was waiting for like six months, like for like a, hey, got your letter. You know, I thought, well, it's a big church. Maybe you never got it. Moved on, forgot about it, whatever it is. And then 11.30 p.m. flight back into town, and you see the way that God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And it doesn't take some kind of prophetic gift or some special thing to, to, to know that in a room like this tonight... There are a lot of you like me that just need a reminder from God that he knows where you are and he knows what is going on and he knows what he's doing. And thank God it's not going to take 42 generations. In my case, it took seven years. Maybe hopefully it won't even take that long. But I've just been so prayerful for this, these moments closing out this service that that in some way tonight or tomorrow or this next week or that in some way God would give you just a, a tangible reminder that he knows what he's doing in your life. And yeah, he sent Jesus and that's, that's the greatest reminder we could ever have. We're not discounting Jesus. But sometimes life can get so discouraging that we just need those moments where God shows up and says, I know what I'm doing. And I just want you to know it's gonna be okay. Hang in there, hang in there. And so Kaylee and the team are gonna come and sing some Christmas songs for us. And then we're gonna light some candles together. But I wanna just pray for us. I wanna just pray for you and remind you that that we're celebrating a real person tonight and that God knows what he's doing. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that from the beginning of time, you have known what you're doing. And you're working your plans and your ways and your time. So God, I just pray for every person who's listening to my voice right now who is discouraged because we can't understand why life is happening the way that it is or why things are taking so long or whatever it is that's discouraging us. God, I pray that tonight, maybe this is it or tomorrow or over the next few days, God, I just pray that there would be some kind of reminder, something that... That, that you do, a way that you show up in our lives that, that just reminds us, God, that, that you know what you're doing and you're always on time and you're never late and your plans are good and they're better than our plans, God. And we can trust you because you're faithful. You're faithful. And so, God, thank you for Jesus and thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.